HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Learn more at forevercheese.com. You are listening to Fields, the podcast, with Melissa Metric and Wythe Marshall. On Fields, we bring you stories about the future, present, and past of urban agriculture, and in general, explore really interesting concepts and meet lots of fascinating people who get up every day and grow food in and around cities, starting with the city we live in, New York City. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today. I'm Wythe Marshall. I'm here with Melissa Metric. Hi, everyone. And we have a great expert guest today, Candace Thompson. Uh, really looking forward to speaking. And yeah, Melissa, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Um, hey, Candace. We're Hi. really happy that you're here to join us. So I guess just to start off, do you want to just explain, you know, kind of who you are, what your background is, certain projects that you're working on, but maybe just start off with you know, your kind of background and what you're working on? Sure. Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. I definitely don't call myself an expert at basically anything in life. So I already feel a little bit like, uh, um, what's it, a Philistine? Is that what that is? <laughs> um, however, I probably just totally malapropped that. However, my name is Candace Thompson. Um, I define myself as a performer and a media maker. So I do what I do in the context of the art world to some degree, I guess, perhaps also the activism world. And I, for the past several years, have been making a project called the Collaborative Urban Resilience Banquet, which the acronym for which is the CURB, where I do kind of a mix of like citizen science and like post-apocalyptic home economic lessons and community events where I forage feral edible plants from around the greater New York City area. I get them toxicity tested through Cornell's nutrient analysis lab. Um, I look at heavy metal content. And then I try and do home experiments to see if there's anything I can do to mitigate the contamination I find therein. So that could include uh, pouring out compost teas or biosolids into abandoned planters in my neighborhood. Or more often, what it includes is trying to use age-old food prep techniques to see if I can reduce lead, cadmium, or arsenic contamination in the things I find. My hope being that maybe one day we could make our streets clean enough to eat off of in the future. I take those foods and other foods that I know come from cleaner sources, um, and I serve them to people at a series of community events. Most of those foods would be considered weeds or invasive species, and they are not. Uh, I mean, I guess they are, but they are also... Uh, incredibly drought tolerant, resident uh, beings who um, show up in places where we consider to be wastelands. And I think that we not only on a poetic level have a lot to learn from them, but on like a very practical feeding uh, our population in a climate change world, have a lot to learn about them. They also, many of them are valuable beings for food and medicine for cultures across the globe. And so they also speak to the cosmopolitan nature of particularly urban city or urban environments across the planet. So yeah, so it's a little bit of like multi-species storytelling. It's a little bit of um, science. It's kind of a weird janky nature show at times. Um, 
yeah, so that's what I do. And then that has kind of expanded and grown into other things, including, um, a little bit of community organizing. I hope to do more of that in the future. And I now am the wild food educator at Stycove Park, which is on the lower, on the east side, on the East River. And it is one of New York City's two publicly forageable uh, food forests um, in New York City. So come and eat our mulberries with me sometime. So uh, when I was kind of developing the idea for this, you know, I thought it would be really cool to make like a TV show or something, but I don't have that kind of money or bandwidth. But what I did have was social media, right? And so um, for the past three years, I've been making this, documenting my entire process on Instagram, namely because I'm in my late 30s and I don't know how to use TikTok. Um, so I uh, use Instagram and um, just about every single day, I am on my dog walks, documenting how the mugwort is doing and, uh, doing a tutorial on how you can, um, you know, harvest clover to make tea or showing people my weird mushroom bucket experiments, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That's my primary medium of choice right now. However, uh, I did recently get a, um, NIFA women in film grant, and I hope to be doing some interviews with folks, um, around the New York area who in my grant application, what I said is, uh, uh, deal with our messy past and plan for a precarious future. So folks working in urban agriculture, soil remediation, land use, uh, environmental uh, justice, etc. So hopefully those will kind of expand into something beyond a Facebook product. Um, but for now, that's a nice, easy commons that we have to utilize. Yeah. And it also seems like actually, yeah, a great way to reach out to people, right? Um, since so many people, uh, especially now, I don't know if people are still quarantining, I guess they're still quarantining, <laughs> but, um, a lot of people are at home and on their devices and checking Instagram a million times. So, yeah, I'm actually wondering, did you get, have since this COVID-19, have you gotten more followers and things like that on Instagram? Or have you noticed that people are like looking at your stories more or... You know, it's funny because I've now been asked by a couple of different press outlets about foraging in COVID um, and foraging in this time. I wouldn't say that like people have been flocking to my door asking me how they can um, avoid the grocery store. I would say that my number, the, my metrics have like continuously, you know, slowly grown, but I'm, I don't, I'm not Kim Kardashian, right? I don't have a billion people following me. However, I feel like I've got a really awesome community that I've found in that space. And what I think that tools like that do enable us to do is build a mycelial mat, if you will, of the folks who are interested in the same topics and conversations. And what I like more than anything are all of the one-on-one -on -one conversations, which I've had with people, which I did actually have to do the math on for my thesis, which I turned in today. I've had over probably at this point, 600 one-on-one -on -one conversations with folks, um, on wow. Instagram, you know, everything from, uh, someone from Argentina giving me nixtamalization advice to somebody else. Uh, I'm trying to think of, I mean, just all, all day, every day. I have really cool conversations. I have all kinds of new friends on the internet, which is really fun. So Candace, thanks for telling us about, um, the curve project that you're working on and also how you're doing that through Instagram. I was also, I think we we're also wondering the projects that you're well, we want to talk about your fermentation projects, but also your newest project, which you seem pretty busy with, which is your milk crate project. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Yes, I am very busy with it. <laughs> um, but the good news is it's a pretty short-lived project, probably. Um, so yeah, back uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, in the early days of the pandemic, um, I started uh, getting on a bunch of the calls with the Cooperative Gardens Commission, which is a, a group of people from across the country who are trying to help their neighbors and their communities um, grow food as a, as a gesture of food security and resilience in the face of the economic fallout that we're all about to be facing. And through that, um, Nate hooked me up with um, a person from Grow NYC named Chloe, who I guess Grow NYC and JetBlue had this urban farm at JFK and they wanted to break it down. Um, but neither JetBlue nor Grow NYC had the bandwidth to do it. Um, but Chloe, uh, just out of the wiseness of her heart, I guess, reached out to folks from the Cooperative Gardens Commission and was like, look, there is this urban farm 
it needs to go away. This is all clean soil and, and, you know, instant raised beds that people in the community could use. I just don't know who can do this. And so myself and Jacqueline Pilati, who is a, an amazing seed keeper here in the city, Luz Cruz, who is a organizer who runs a group called the Queer Kitchen Collect, Queer Kitchen Brigade, Sadea Brownlee, who runs the Brooklyn Queensland Trust, Lucy Lesser, who uh, is a awesome person who uh, got interested in this. Anyways, this small group of folks um, and Sandra Jefferson, who works at the Randall's Island Farm, the six of us are organizing together to um, break 2,700 milk crates full of clean soil and compost and some plants down and get them dispersed to people throughout the five boroughs. So every week for the past five weeks, what that's looked like is we go out to JFK and we load a bunch of box trucks with milk crates and then we drop them off at hubs throughout the mostly through Brooklyn, Queens and the Bronx. And then um, people either come pick them up or have them delivered by volunteers. And hopefully it is a, a first step for folks to either individually or as collectives grow food and kind of reclaim some agency over where their food comes from. Yeah. Last weekend we did the Bronx. It was really awesome. Got to meet and go to so many amazing community gardens there. And uh, the folks were taking milk crates in order to grow food for the local community where of course you're already uh, facing food apartheid before COVID came along. And now many of the food banks are overtaxed. And so it felt really good to do that. Even if it was raining and I did pick a fight with a fire hydrant. Um, and now I have a giant welt on my leg, but it, it was, uh, it's, it's really awesome. And we're almost done. We only have about 700 crates left. So we've done about 2000. Wow. So there was 2000 in total. 2700 total. 2700 total. Wow. Can yeah. you tell us about the origins of this? Like why did this farm exist in the first place and then why wasn't it maintained? Like why out of nowhere was this need to move a farm at JFK Airport? I mean it's amazing what you're doing. Let me just say that also. Uh, do you want my cynical answer? <laughs> I I honestly don't know. Um I know that I think I from what I remember I like looked it up. I think they I they built it in 2015. You know, I'm sure at the time it seemed like a really amazing gesture <clears throat> and a PR stunt and greenwashing to have an urban farm. And uh, from what I understand, it was a collaboration with Terra Chips and they thought they were going to grow potato chips. And in one of the press pieces I've seen, they talked about how they were going to provide food to the restaurants in the airport. I'm here to tell you, no Wolfgang a puck. Wolfgang Puck Express needs your bespoke arugula that you grew on the tarmac at JFK. Like that's just not how that system works. I think we've all <laughs> made it blatantly clear to us now that we've seen how our food system works. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't know many specifics. And so I might, you know, I'm probably speaking out of turn here, but I know that they do not right now, nor did they have intentions at the beginning of this year of um, continuing to fund it. Yeah. So there's a resource, right? And there's a resource that uh, many other people could be using. Um, I'm less interested in, in why they couldn't do it. I'm more interested in how I can uh, take that and turn it into gold for someone else. So just a side note, we spoke with Candace a little further off mic about the origins of this project, and we all just wanted to mention that we respect the actual urban farmers that originally started this project. It's been really cool. So we got uh, some fresh compost from Lower East Side Ecology last week that we were able to kind of put in some of the tops of the crates that we dropped off this week. And I'm actually really eager to continue working with them, especially given that, you know, our entire composting situation is on the chopping block. I'm really excited to continue to help get clean soil and compost into people's hands whenever and however possible. It's one of the like rarest resources we have here in the city. I don't know about y'all, but since this all started, I have people texting me like, where do I get soil? Where do I got compost? It's like, it's like, it's become the hottest club drug. Um, people, people want it more than they want Molly all of a sudden. And it's pretty cool. I'm pretty excited to all of a sudden be cool. Um, cool. So I it's also weird to go to, to stop composting, you know, to be told like, Hey, don't bring your compost here anymore. We're shutting it down. After that program, it got up and running. It was like, it wasn't just a disappointment. It was like a real weird change to like, you know, daily habit. Like you get used to something and then you realize, yeah, that it's very fragile. And, and I think you're, you're right. I mean, the COVID crisis is just exposing 
so many wacky and terrible things. And, and yeah, you're doing amazing work to, um, to redirect some of those resources. So, so I love that idea of like, what are these excesses that capitalism's already built in? And, and what are some resources that are just low hanging fruit to like move around and redirect to people who actually need them? Uh, yeah. so that's really cool. I love that example. Absolutely. And to remind people that they don't have to buy, like, we don't have to buy things, you know, like we can, we can build an alternative model. Yeah. The compost thing. Whew. It's really a bummer, especially given that like by not, by not composting our food scraps, it moves us further and further away from our kind of low carbon goal of 2050 or whatever. It just seems like you could, um, I don't know, spend a little less on police or I can think of a lot of things they probably spend a lot of money on a lot more money than composting. Well, it's also interesting because like the people who process the compost in New York city, I mean, there's a bunch of different areas where they process all of these, like the brown bin collection system. And when they collect food scraps at, at farmer's markets and things like one of them is Red Hook compost site where they only hire three people as it is. And it's mostly voluntary work. So it's like, yes, they have to pick up the compost bins and things like that, but it's not like it's, and they don't even use any machinery whatsoever. They hand turn all of the compost. I used to be a volunteer for them. So I used to like go on Friday mornings, like for six weeks and just, you know, shovel compost for three hours. Wow. <laughs> but it's, but it's also, it seems like almost like this low cost thing that it's interesting that that is the thing that they're going to stop um, doing in general. Right. Um, and also when people are trying to kind of, just not spend as much money and have more things around and be more resourceful. Like what both of you guys said, this is just, um, a thing that's free, you know, that we could literally make like, what, the, what do they call it? They call it black gold, mm-hmm. right? Because it's this free thing that we could just make out of our waste and we don't consider it waste anymore. So yeah, I don't know. I'm yeah. pretty bummed about it as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's crazy to think, I will say, you know, obviously I do not intend to make light of the COVID crisis, but for the first time in my life and, you know, since (laughs) probably since the first time since fossil fuels became a thing, soil is worth more than oil right now. And like, um, that's, that's pretty beautiful. I hope it kind of stays that way. Yeah. I I've been dreaming up with, um, the folks at Lower East Side Ecology. I really want to have a dirt party a safe COVID friendly dirt party, but I want to get a big dump truck of uh, sediment from the clean soil bank and get all the stuff, the, you know, the quar and the perlite or whatever it is and, and have people bring their compost and like have people mix their own potting soil and just be like, bring your bucket, get you what you need for your raised beds or whatever. Um, cause you know, those, the clean soil bank is an amazing resource that we have where they all of a sudden realized that they were paying to, ship out all of this, you know, glacial sediment that could make clean soil for us. And like, but you can only get it in a dump truck or whatever it is, 20 cubic yards. And it's like, how do we make those sorts of resources more available to kind of micro communities, you know? Yeah. Can you talk about where that soil actually comes from? Yeah. Well, it's one of those silver linings, right? Um, which I guess, you know, if we are about to see a massive drop in development here, perhaps we will uh, not have as much as many deposits to the clean soil bank. But the clean soil bank is the soil that gets pulled out from underneath these massive McCondos that get put up where they need to build, um, where they need to dig out giant foundations. When they build those, they pull all of this sediment. It's not proper soil yet, right? You would know this better than me, Melissa. It's just glacial. It's 10,000 year old glacial sediment that is perfectly clean. And we used to pay to cart it out of the city, and now we store it, I believe, at Floyd Bennett Field. Don't quote me on that. I know that Stycove Park, where I work, we got a big shipment of it a couple of years ago to build some portable planters um, and mixed it with compost and stuff. It's such an amazing project, and I would love to see it be more available to more people on a different scale. Kind of going back, like uh, speaking about scale, so why do you think milk crates are actually kind of good to grow in? Oh, whoa. Uh, <laughs> or are they not? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I now have, I have four of them now. I would imagine they're going to come with their own challenges for sure. Right. Like I, it's funny. I am not a, I am not a farmer. I have a back 
I have a back patio that is a piece of roof that I claimed in the name of green space and mental health when I first moved into my loft about 11 years ago. I tried in the early years to grow some fruits and vegetables there. Um, I lost to the rats and the buildings and lack of sun and kind of just decided that I was going to have a garden of spontaneous urban plants, which is one of the ways that I kind of got into New York's weedier species. Um, because they show up and they don't care. They don't need to be watered every morning. And the rats actually don't care about wild spinach. They don't care about Eastern black nightshade. So I can grow those things and, and eat them and they don't mess with them. But to your question about the milk crates, it seems like they're really good for greens and herbs and brassicas because that seemed to be most of what they were growing in them. The chives that are in them are still very happy. It seemed like they grew some pretty impressive collards and things like that. I've had several people who are like, I'm going to grow tomatoes in this. And I'm like, I bet that's not the best idea. But you know, it's, if it's folks first time growing something like it's a gateway drug, right? Like they're not going to like have the maximum output, right? Like they're not, they're not selling to Del Monte. They're trying to like grow a tomato this year and feel some kind of relationship to that. And that small scale is enough for me. Right. Yeah. And, and also just a sense of like, one of the cool things about growing in milk crates, it's like, yes, it has a lot of surface area exposure and yes, it might only be like one square foot or something. But if you practice like square foot growing, Mm -hmm. then you could plant, you know, nine or 12 beets or something like that. But the other thing is that it's portable. Mm -hmm. So when you're in like urban areas, Yes, it it takes a lot to move 2,700 milk crates for sure, (laughs) but you could move 2,700 milk crates, right? It's doable. You could pack it up into a truck and you could bring it to these other locations. So a lot of times in urban areas, when you're dealing with like raised beds and stuff, if they're breaking down a farm or a garden, it's going to be a lot harder to transport that soil, break down the beds, all these other things. But when you're actually growing in containers, sometimes you could just move those containers to another location. Absolutely. They can, they are as transient as the population itself. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Which is a pretty great thing. Yeah. Cause I have some friends who have a big backyard and it's, you know, contaminated as hell and cool. How long are you going to live here? Do you really want to invest in putting down some raised beds? Probably not. But actually right now, what they've been doing this entire time is they've been digging big holes and making little baby hugo cultures in their backyard. And fi- and it's been pretty fun to watch their process. Wait, um, what, is, what is that? Uh, oh, you know, when you put the sticks, put the wood underneath the, you know, hugo culture, you're, you're a farmer, um, you know, where you put the, the sticks under the dirt and then you put the dirt on top and then you put the plants on top. Right. Isn't that yeah, I think a raised, raised bed made out of like a mound of, of soil and, and yeah, underneath like like twigs to prop it up. Like it's a, it's, it's like making uh, kind of like a windrow, but yeah, you plant in it. What is it? Do you know why, why hugo cultures are used other places? I mean, in, in this case, you're saying it's a way to avoid using the, the soil that's bad, right? Like it's a way to kind of hack that space. Well, they're, they're not growing anything edible in it. We just yeah. literally couldn't, their soil was so compacted and so just, I mean, they also are underneath a black walnut tree. So I think like, it's just, there's just, nothing going. You know what I mean? I think their soil was just so compacted. They couldn't even get clover to like grow, you know? And so now they've just been going through and digging these funny little stick, stick piles and then covering them in soil and seeding clover on top. And, um, I, I, I would imagine that when you do it properly, which I do have friends who have done, it's probably a question of like, it's, as it slowly breaks down, it's reduced, it's releasing all those wonderful things. Plants like probably creating some kind of mycorrhizal fungi relationship, I assume. I don't know. Y'all, 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 the farmers, I just read about this stuff. No, that's really cool. It sounds like though you've had really extensive experience, um, with a range of techniques and all over the city, like all the, the boroughs and sites. Um, and I was particularly struck that you work with food forests, uh, cause that also seems to get at this issue of like, what can you grow in urban environments where maybe the soil isn't good or yeah, there's just like, d- there's different resources available in the city already. And it always, you know, kills me that they, they seem underutilized. Um, from the top down. So like we definitely have parks. Um, but as you said, like most of them, you're not allowed to forage in, you're not supposed to forage in. Um, so I was very struck by the idea that there are spaces where the city is encouraging uh, forging. And, and yeah, I was just curious to hear um, kind of how you got into that. I mean, how did you, um, if you're not you know, a farmer, how did you get into all these different techniques for sort of finding and making food in the city, you know, develop a, a career around that way? Right. Well, I come by it honestly. So I'm from Eastern Kentucky. I grew up in a family that always had a garden in our backyard. 
often foraged for, you know, the very simple things, the berries and the nuts and the things every spring and summer and fall. And my family were hunters and fishers. So I grew up eating a good amount of my food from my local ecosystem until I was about, uh, about 10 or 11 years old. That was most of my protein was hunted or caught. A lot of my produce was grown in our backyard. And, um, one of my favorite things was always, um, going berry picking with my grandparents or, you know, picking hickory nuts in the fall. I would argue and often contend that for most of us, be you an indigenous person from this place, be you an immigrant from another place, be you a person who was brought here against your will, you come from a, it is not that far out of your ancestral lineage for you to have that sort of relationship to your local ecosystem and your local food web. It's usually just one or two generations removed. Now, if you're little Lord Fauntleroy and you and your great, 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 great grandparents all lived in a castle, then I guess that's a little different. But honestly, that's not that many of us most of us are the proletariat. We just like to think that we might be rich one day. I diverge. So, uh, so that I, I, that is my background. And in thinking about the climate crisis several years ago, I just started thinking about how to reconnect and how to have some type of agency or relationship to what was going on because the problem felt so big, right? And I remembered myself being a, you know, seven-year-old hanging out, checking crab traps every weekend in Florida with my dad on his boat and having this very direct relationship to my, my food and where it came from and was like, you know what, I'm going to like relearn how to, I want to learn about the plants that live here, you know? So I just like got a guidebook and some of them were ones that I knew from where I was from, but a lot of them are from all over the globe, right? They're not from Eastern Kentucky. We don't, we don't really have amaranth. Uh, Callaloo growing wild on the streets in Eastern Kentucky the same way. Um, so yeah, so I just kind of started teaching myself. And then through that process, it's, it's been this like iterative question asking process of like, Oh wow, that's wild spinach. Huh? I wonder if I could eat it out of that tree pit. I wonder why I couldn't eat it out of that tree pit. I wonder what was here before. I wonder if there's anything I could do about it. I wonder what it would be like to grow it somewhere else. I wonder what plant domestication is about. I wonder what seed keeping is about. Like it kind of goes like that. My brain has stopped stopping since this has begun because I'm just so fascinated by this way of relating to nature. And I'm not as upset and sad about climate change anymore because I have a way to approach my relationship to the planet that um, works on both a, a micro and a macro scale in a different way. This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese. Forever Cheese has been a pioneer in the specialty food industry for over 20 years. They source the most exceptional, authentic, and creative artisan cheese and accompaniments from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia. Every product they carry is thoughtfully hand-selected from their trusted producers in Europe. The standards of Forever Cheese are legendary. Many of their products, including Drunken Goat, Genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mitica Marcona almonds, and fig and date cakes are now integral to today's market. You can learn more about their product lineup at forevercheese.com. Forever Cheese is proud of their role as a trusted authority in the specialty cheese world. Their philosophy is to put passion behind everything they do, from finding the best products to celebrating those who make them. Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Finally, Forever Cheese remembers and celebrates the life of James Coogan, a great man who is truly passionate about cheese and the industry and lived his life to the fullest. Thanks to Forever Cheese for supporting this episode. Learn more at forevercheese.com. Well, that's really awesome. I really like how you're tying uh, practical, you know, knowledge to like history and sort of, yeah, an awakening of curiosity that's a lot bigger than just sort of viewing it as like, oh, I should learn about, you know, one, one thing like foraging or gardening or whatnot. But you're, you're more curious about the natural world. Um, but that relates to, yeah, humans as well. Um, and, and all kinds of big, big questions. So that, that's really inspiring. Yeah. And, and also the sense that it helps you not be so afraid of the future and climate change, right? Because for some of us, it can be like really debilitating in a way, but it's actually 
nice that you kind of acted on this. And this is a way that almost in studying these like really resilient plants, which are weeds, Mm -hmm. um, it's almost like they're inspiring us in a way, right? It's like they adapt all the time. They become these really strong species. They kind of adapt to really extreme conditions and they're still alive and surviving and we could eat them. So it's kind of, yeah, just a really interesting project in general. Yeah. And, and do you mind, like, I I think one question I have is, do you think that getting specific, like learning skills, trying stuff out, um, makes climate change less scary because it makes it less abstract in a way? Cause I feel like that's maybe part of it for me is it can seem very like out there. And, you know, when you're actually growing something, it's like, you're dealing with something specific, you know, you're, you're caring for like one life or whatever it is. You're talking to one person about it. I don't know. I wonder, I wonder how you sort of view your work now in relation to those big questions. Yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it. I mean, I've, you know, for better or worse, I've, I've always been a person of, of action. I'm not a person who, um, lies around and feels sad about things. (laughs) And I, I think that it, it helps me feel like I'm doing something both for myself, but for my local food web. And hopefully in the process of sharing it on something like social media, maybe offering ideas um, to other folks and getting ideas from other folks, right? Cross-pollinating with other people um, and building community, which is what actually makes us feel a lot better in those moments of despair, right? When you feel like you're the only one who isn't throwing your disposable gloves and mask on the street every day, because I often feel like that right now. <laughs> um, and like, I, um, yeah, I think it's just really important to look for the the role models, right? The the helpers, the the holes in the net, not the not the webbing itself. To find find the ways through. I've always been kind of scrappy like that, though. That's just kind of who I am. If you tell me that something I'm not allowed to do something, I'll be like, okay, but what if I do it this way? Then can I do it? So I think that also applies to um, thinking about food systems and and how to kind of tweak systems so that they work better for all of us. When it comes to public parks, I want to say that I would love to live in a world in which, um, much like having a hunting license or something like that, there were ways and, and practices for folks who do forage already, which are largely in New York City immigrant populations, to go out and get the garlic mustards and the mugworts and the wine berries that they presumably want out of the, the park system and are paying to poison right now. I would love to know how much of their, how much money is still going to Monsanto in next year's financial budget, as opposed to going to the composting sites. We have other ways to steward land and we can look to indigenous folks for this, of course, like about how to relate to land and care for and steward land so that we manage our abundance. If you want to call them invasive, fine. Uh, We manage our abundant species and make food or craft out of them, create local sustainable economies. I don't understand why we poison anything because when we do that, all we do is poison ourselves. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of um, an article that I read in Australia and why there was so much, why there was like, you know, Australia every year has fires, Mm -hmm. but it was really just like a mismanagement of all the forests and how all of this greenery was allowed to like grow up. And that's why it kind of became a tinderbox. But in the sense of, of how to manage it in a specific way where you're not using poisons, but you are... Exactly. Like letting people, I mean, there has been this whole movement of eating invasives. Like maybe you've heard about that with fish and mm-hmm. other things. Like, I don't know, Candace, did you do this? Is the, I, I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'm thinking of like zebra mussels. I don't know how tasty those are, <laughs> but, but other varieties, like maybe a certain type of crab or something like that. But also, so going back to Australia, the Aborigines, they used to manage their land really, really well so that there wouldn't be these huge forest fires. Um, They wouldn't let a lot of that undergrowth grow. And I don't know if they would forage it or what they would do with it. I'm sure they wouldn't use Monsanto chemicals on it or (laughs) Bayer chemicals or whatever. But um, just this idea of yeah, how to manage in a sustainable way. But I love the concept of actually turning that into food. And with the huge like immigrant population, that's especially in urban areas, they still have this knowledge. And the cool thing is that what you're doing with your work is that you are 
again, kind of making this knowledge available to certain populations and even to like millennials or whoever's on Instagram. Right. So, um, but also like the, the far reach that you could have and just kind of exposing all of these things that we usually walk by, like that plant blindness, Mm -hmm. um, and that we could actually eat them. But also the cool thing is that you're actually testing all of this stuff to make sure that we can eat it and the, and how men, like how much heavy metals are actually in this food. Um, which is sometimes surprising because you also test supermarket produce as well. That's right. Yeah. And I should, I always just want to clarify when I test stuff, I can only test for certain things, right? Um, I'm working on arts grants, very small arts grants. So I cannot test for the PCBs. I cannot test for the polyaromatics, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. I cannot test for the perfluoral alkyls. I can only look at anything that's on the periodic table. I often have to begin my, my, um, events by saying, look, like here are the things I can test for. Here are the things that your food, well, so let me back up. I, I test my stuff at Cornell using the uh, nutrient analysis lab. I look specifically at cadmium, arsenic, and lead. I compare those levels, uh, dry weight levels, to the levels for the EU standards for uh, commercially available foods because, spoiler alert, we eat all of those things very often. So for instance, for cadmium, I compare it to the uh, EU limit for cadmium in dark chocolate. That is one of our largest vectors for cadmium in the food supply. Uh, for lead, I compare to leafy greens and seafood because those are two of our biggest vectors. And for arsenic, I compare to rice. And so if anything I collect is below, as at or below those levels, I deem it clean enough to serve to people with the very large asterisk, right? That like there's lots of other things I don't know are in there. I am very explicit that this is not food for kids. Much like you're only supposed to eat certain seafood out of New York City waterways, but once a week or once a month, it's kind of that same idea. Yeah. And to go back to your invasives, I, I serve Asian shore crabs a good amount. Um, I think we had them at the banquet you came to this past fall, Melissa. Yeah, it was delicious. Yeah, they're good. They're good little buddies when they're fried. So invasive boars, right? Like, and you know, it's interesting to me that these beings appear. And I think that there's something more to just, I have infinite faith in nature to know what nature needs. <laughs> um, and so I also don't, I don't view Japanese knotweed as a scourge, right? Like Japanese knotweed is clearly here because the planet is trying to sort some shit out. I think it's very interesting that it eats through concrete. I think it's very interesting that it is serving as a fall time foraging food source for bees. I think it's very interesting that it's hollow canes also can be made into bee houses for native bees. Um, it is a food source. It also is being proven useful in treating Lyme disease. Like there are reasons why this plant is here. It is not just here to terrorize you, which is what a lot of people, when they seem to get this kind of invasive, anti-invasive, xenophobic plant mentality, it becomes this, oh man, they just start frothing at the mouth about some of these plants. And they're like, this plant is not evil. Like, it is literally not evil. And yeah. in fact, it's here because we have so royally jacked the ecosystem that the native plants that were supposed to be here actually can't hang on. And so like, if, I don't know if it's just that they're like projecting their own frustration at our species onto this other being, but it isn't Phragmites fault. I hate to break it to you. Like it isn't Mugwort's fault. And I, I think there's something poetic to be learned from each one of these beings about how we could be, how we could be better global citizens to the non-human world. Yeah. And also just being aware of, I, I guess the other thing is what we're bringing and what we're planting, right? Mm -hmm. Like for example, I love mint <laughs> mm -hmm. and I've definitely planted mint plenty of times in non-containers. <laughs> now right. I'm dealing with mint forever on the NYU urban farm lab because mint just really wants to, you know, it wants to do its thing and it's lovely and it smells nice, you know, but it's like, Hey man, I'm the one who put it there. Yes. So it's like, I'm also going to have to deal with just what it wants to do in a way, but absolutely, you know, it's like, we're the reason why the Japanese knotweed is on, you know, is 
in the Americas and things like that. So it's just kind of interesting that in general. Absolutely. Yeah. Garlic mustard, right? Like an ancestral food for people all over the planet was brought here as a food source now is filling every single forest in the, you know, greater 48 States. People are like poison it. I'm like, nah, come get Joan, come get, come get it and eat it. It's edible four seasons of the year. You can, you can use every single part of this plant. There is no reason to poison it. Eat it, please. I mean, it is kind of interesting because I remember when I was working for Roberta, the chefs were really into, um, they're really into forage foods and they're really into edible weeds. And I remember when I first started there, they really wanted purslane and they really wanted what is the other one? Oh, it kind of looks like a clover wood sorrel. Uh, and mm-hmm. I remember like wood sorrel, we just didn't have it. And I remember going out to California and seeing wood sorrel everywhere. And I was just like, <laughs> how am I going to get wood sorrel back? <laughs> and it's like, duh, like, like, you know, just wait, don't worry. But in the sense of like the chefs using it within their cuisine and all this other stuff. And so I would just let a lot of these weeds grow because the chefs would use it in their like fancy dishes. So why not? You know? Right. Yeah, you're reframing it. I think it's interesting how weeds function in that way. Um, you know, if if you can reframe the weed as food, uh, maybe you can yeah reframe a lot of these these questions that Candice you're exploring around like what's the what's like a good way to use land. And yeah, maybe a public park. Maybe you don't dump poison in it, and you just accept that the plants are changing, and that's a reality. And like maybe we need to adapt to like different tiny plants not a big deal. Whereas like dumping poison on it seems like a bigger deal actually. So I think it's interesting how the, you know, the work of art and foraging and some of these practices might, might play a crucial role in reframing some of these issues um, and getting people not just like interested in gardening or farming, but really rethinking on a fundamental level, like what's around them and, and what is, uh, what is safe. Like I love the idea of what you're doing with risk because it makes it more of a risk profile. It's like a lot of the food we eat actually has risk and we just tend to ignore it on purpose you might see a weed as like especially risky but actually if you kind of do what you're doing and look at it scientifically um yeah it might be that actually it's it's really the same level of risk and and you know we we do that all the time we we eat food that has stuff in it it's probably not good for us so yeah i just think this this work is is really intriguing and i'm curious to hear so you said you just finished um a, a degree like just now yeah like just today that's congrats. <laughs> congratulations <laughs> I don't know, you know, you could have like, I guess, gone out, but I don't know what, you know, going out doesn't mean the same thing anymore. So thanks for, for being with us. Uh, yeah, what was your like degree in? What was, what's, what's that about? You know? Yeah. So I got a master's in integrated media art from Hunter college. So, you know, I make, I make art, I make art about lots of other topics as well. I make art about phone addiction and, and digital surveillance. Um, I make work around, uh, the body and, uh, somatic trauma as an ancestral heirloom, but, um, I would say that the curb is like my eldest and biggest child, um, that I care for the most. Don't tell the others. Yeah. So that's what I got my degree in. Um, so I make stuff with computers and with my body and with my voice, um, and with other people. And in this instance, truly integrated media, because I'm often working with things like mushrooms and soil and fermentation, right? I wanted to offer an example for the whole risk question. So I often make fermented ginkgo cheese, vegan cheese out of ginkgo nuts that I forage on Johnson Avenue in Bushwick. Um, and I, to, I, to make that, I mix it with cashews that I buy from the store. I tested the cashews from the store and they had more lead in them. They had lead in them, um, which the ginkgos did not. The ginkgos had 0.01 milligrams per kilogram cadmium in them. For reference, the upper limit of dark chocolate is 0.8. So if you've eaten a chocolate bar in the past year, those ginkgos are not your problem. I just think it's really interesting, these notions of like, who do we trust to feed us and and at what cost and to whom? And so those ginkgos are, are uh, you know, an amazing food source that grows right here. These amazing, resilient beings who literally are um, dinosaurs, right, have withstood atom bombs in Japan and, um, also are really good for, uh, lung health, which is proving to be pretty important. And lo and behold, we all just think they stink and we don't want the females planted because of the fruit they create, but that's a food source. Yeah. I like ginkgos. Ginkgo appreciation. Well, I also like ginkgos. Uh, and I think that's really cool that you're working. Yeah. You're working with a lot of different plants. I'm just thinking across what you said and you know, I understand it's, it's a, it's only part of your art practice, but it really is like, 
uh, an amazing breadth of stuff you've got going on that you've already described. I would say you had some more questions, right? Can you actually tell us through your fermentation project, how if certain things are contaminated, how you could actually pull that contamination out through your preservation techniques? Yeah. So what I can say, what I've, what I've studied so far, I mean, let's be clear. I went to maybe half of my chemistry class in high school. I was somewhere else for the other half. So I've had to teach myself a lot of this stuff. And I am in no way, shape or form a chemist. And once I kind of get too deep down the conversation, my eyes glaze over, but I can understand it from a, from a very basic, like kitchen witch standpoint, for instance, lead and cadmium are soluble in acids. So in one of my first conversations with um, Murray McBride, who is a soil scientist at Cornell, I was asking him like, well, what could we do about it? You know, like what, what could I do to try and get rid of this stuff if it was in the plants? And he was like, well, they're soluble in acids. And I was like, like, like vinegar, like, could I pickle something and it would take it out? And he was like, I don't know, maybe. And so of course that's what I did. So um, I would collect field garlics from the uh, raised beds near my local police precinct where they cut down all the weeds, but leave all the trash, which I think is just plain stupid. I collect all the field garlics. I bring them home. I just make a quick pickle solution out of vinegar and water and sugar and chili peppers or whatever. And then I let those sit. And so far, the three times that I've done that, it proves, it seems that, uh, the lead and cadmium are pulled out of the plant tissue and into the vinegar brine. So you can eat the pickles, but you can't drink the brine. Arsenic, by contrast, is soluble in water. So some dandelion roots that I collected in Cooper Park were very arsenic heavy, probably because of all the rat poison. And so I take that and I put it in tea for five minutes. Um, and it does pull some arsenic into, into solution. However, it pulls, um, less than is say in your white rice. It's actually pretty nominal in the grand scheme of things. So you could, you could presumably drink that dandelion tea, but I choose to find it from a cleaner source because it's a medicine and you want your medicine to be clean. And then for instance, if I make a mugwort beer, which I do a lot, uh, so far what I've found is that when I make a wort, a tea out of the mugwort, if it has lead or cadmium in it, that is not soluble in water. So I can make that wort and the lead and the cadmium stay in the plant tissue and my beer comes out clean. So in the apocalypse, we can all still get drunk. We got that. <laughs> nice. But once again, that does, does, does not say anything about if somebody poured a quart of motor oil there. I don't know what that's, I don't know what that's doing. If someone, I, I cannot test, it's very hard to test for herbicides, um, glyphosates, because they're designed to break down in the environment quickly. So that's a challenge. I would love for someone to give me a whole bunch of money so that I can run a full slate of tests. Uh, when you do that through a commercial lab, it runs anywhere from one to $5,000 per sample. So wow. dear rich people of the world, <laughs> yes. help, help me keep doing this please so, so that raises two really important questions which might be you know by way of signing off you know one is i'd love to hear like what's your vision like what are some things that you find encouraging maybe about what's going on uh despite covid you know but coming together and growing more in our communities and you know what are worrying trends or things yeah you'd like to see like i love that idea of like yeah please give me more money to do these tests why why are these tests not being done more and then the second question is really simple, which is just, where can we find you? You know, what's what's the best way to keep up with your work? It sounds like Instagram. So definitely let us know before we take off, you know, what's your Instagram handle and, and how can people interact and uh, support Curb? Yeah, cool. Thanks. So um, things that really inspire me right now, uh, land trusts. I do not know how to say the name of this land trust, but there is an, an Ohlone-led uh, land trust in San Francisco, Sogoriate, maybe. God, I'm sorry. I'm just sorry to everybody that I just tried it. Um, it is a, an indigenous women-led um, group that is literally buying up land um, whenever possible in the San Francisco area and giving it back to BIPOC folks to have a relationship with. Um, I'm inspired by the... I believe it's the country's largest food forest, which I think is in Atlanta right now and was built on an old golf course, which is just like 
<laughs> it's like beautiful. I am inspired by uh, swale, right? This amazing floating food, a uh, food, a uh, food forest on a barge, right? And this um, projects like that that kind of help people reimagine what food can be. Even urban farms, uh, rooftop farms here in New York City are amazing. BK Rot is amazing. Um, there's, I mean. I, if I open the like Pandora's box of all the amazing things that I'm inspired by, um, I might not stop. There's so many things that make me afraid or worried are how this moment has engendered a return to disposability by necessity sometimes. But I also think sometimes people opt for, oh, I'm just going to put these gloves on and then I'm just going to proceed to still touch my face and my keys and this car door. But I'm now fine because I have some some disposable gloves. I think it's really hard for us as a culture because we've been so attuned. We've been so trained to live in this world of convenience and disposability. And it's really hard for us to think about slower alternative ways of being that aren't so consumptive. I'm also really worried about digital surveillance. (laughs) Zoom. We're zooming a lot. And on that note, how you can find me is on Instagram. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so my handle is um, the curb with some underscores in it. Um, maybe if you guys have a little web page, it'll be easier to just link to it there. I've been told if you just search for the cur- the curb, it shows up. Yeah, we got you. We'll, we'll we'll hook you up with the links. Cool, man. Yeah, and I will hopefully be building a website that will hold a lot of my content and and interviews and things this fall and winter that will be the curb.earth right now. It just kind of holds a little mission statement video that I made for the project when I started it. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. We will uh, definitely follow up and maybe be back in touch and we can talk more about food forests and maybe even sort of post COVID hopefully. Um, yeah. But thank you so much today uh, for bringing up a whole lot of stuff. I'm still thinking about. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate it. It was really nice to talk to y'all. Thank you so much, Candace. Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Warner. And another big thanks to Liam Warner for the music on this episode. Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.